Wonderful. Let's go ahead and grab our seats, please. We're going to carry on with our series today called Discern. So turn in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. We're presently doing a series called Discern. It's a short mini-series. So if you're new to Sovereign Grace, this isn't usually how we do series. We usually do very long series. So at the start of March, we're going back into our series on Exodus. We're at about week 22 of 52. So you'll be finding out how we actually usually preach the long books of the Bible. But we are taking some time out to do a mini-series called Discern. And the reason for that is because it's a, a series that I really felt, felt the Lord put on my heart. To help us be a people that really are building our house upon the rock. To assure that we're not being a people that are saying, Lord, Lord, and then not actually going and doing anything with that. We're saying, Lord, Lord, and bowing the knee to him and building our lives in accordance with his word. And so two weeks ago, we looked at the importance of discerning our world. What it means to actually engage with culture and understand that we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. Last week, we looked at discern our mission. And the importance and priority on our lives to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us, which is so holistic and important in every way. And today, then, I want us to look at discern our church. So if you want a title for this message, it's discern your church. And in many ways, we're going to be spending some time looking at the entirety of the book of Ephesians but at least want us to start with some opening verses. And so we're going to read Ephesians 5, verse 22, through to verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's pray. Lord, did you open our eyes today to the glories of the church? Would you help us see this morning how you see the church? Would you help us to discern in our own lives how you feel about the church and would our feelings fall in line with your feelings? Lord, we want to be like you. We need you to do that. So help us by your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the great joys of pastoral ministry, at least for me, is being involved with people on their wedding days. It's one of the most special days that anybody's going to have in their life if God calls you to be married. And so it is no um, less an opportunity for me pastorally to actually be involved with people, particularly on their wedding days, because usually like they're right here and I'm right here and you're like you're real close while it's all going on and for me without doubt the best bit of that day or one of them the best bit of that day is seeing the groom's face when his bride starts to walk towards him I love that I was reading this week an article in the Daily Mail called crying the knot and it was all about this lady who's gone around lots of different weddings and she's been spending time at different weddings and she's not been looking at anything else apart from the groom all day 
She wants to see how does he react when the bride's around. And I'd have to say, as a pastor, I've observed the same thing. That the bride comes in, everybody's waiting. I, as a, as a pastor, tell everybody to please stand to your feet because the bride's arrived. And somebody goes, oh, this is so exciting. And they all turn around and face the bride, right? And then she comes down. And as soon as she takes the first few steps, you're all looking at the bride. I'm not. I'm looking at the groom. And often then people start to turn around with the bride and they look at the groom as well. And one of the things I love about that moment is in that moment you see on the groom's face just how in love and passionate he is about the woman walking towards him. She's his life. She's the one that he's chosen. She's the one that he wants to be with. She's the one that right now looks the most beautiful that she's ever looked, and he is utterly overwhelmed. Sometimes they cry, sometimes they don't, but their eyes give away their passion for that lady walking towards them. I love that moment when it happens. I love it because you get to find out how that man feels about his bride, but I also love it because it is a dim yet living reflection of Christ's passionate love for his bride. You want to know how Jesus feels about his church? In a dim reflection, look at the groom's face when his bride is walking towards him and you'll see something. of Just how passionate he is about the church. How passionate indeed is he? Well, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He so loves his bride, the church, that he laid down his life for her. John Stott, in his Ephesians commentary, says it this way. He says, What stands out in Paul's development of this theme of the bride is the sacrificial steadfastness of the heavenly bridegroom's covenant love for her. He chose her from eternity past. He set his affections upon her. And then buying her back from sin, he gently sanctifies and cleanses her preparing her for himself. His love for his bride is not flighty. It's not given to whim, for it is zealous and it is unchanging. Now, wonderful. That's how Jesus feels about his bride. That's how Jesus feels about the church. And so here's the question that I want to ask us this morning as we seek to discern our church. Here's the question. If Jesus is so passionate about the church, then does my life, and does your life, reflect a similar passion for the church? If Jesus is so evidently and clearly in his life, passionate about the church to the point where he gave his whole life for her, then does your life and my life reflect a similar passion for the church? You see, we are called to imitate Christ, are we not? Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, that we're called to imitate God. We're called to be more and more conformed to His likeness, which means we're called in and of ourselves to be passionate about what He's passionate about, to love what He loves, to hate what He hates, to become in and through our lives all the time more and more like the person of Jesus Christ. And so we can't avoid questions like this, thinking, oh, that was just Him, it's different for me. No, that was Him, and so we need to become like that. If he was so passionate about the church, then does my life reflect a similar passion for the church? Now, I'm aware that can be a hard question to get our hands around. I mean, it can be so difficult, can't it? I mean, does my, passion, does my life reflect a passion for the church? I mean, it maybe, I don't know. It's such a big concept. 
And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at five realities of what it looks like as biblically defined to be passionate about the church. Five realities that we can see in the letter of Ephesians. Five realities that I think will help us to really evaluate our own lives, to work out, am I passionate about the church? And we'll also envision us and encourage us afresh, I believe, to really be people that are passionate about the church like Jesus Christ is. So what does it look like to be passionate about the church? Well, five things. Here's the first. A person passionate about the church lives to see Jesus Christ glorified. You know, this can't be avoided. And it's where the story begins. If we're really going to be passionate about the church, then in and of ourselves we live to see Jesus Christ glorified. See, as Paul begins his great masterpiece on the local church, which is the letter of Ephesians, it's so important that we take note as to where he begins. Because where he begins and makes clear to us is that, you know, when it comes to the church, it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. It's all from him and through him and to him. The star player in any local church is Jesus Christ. This is what he says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. Pay attention to all the times that he says he, him, or Jesus Christ. It's brilliant. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Do you get the point? Every time it's like, it's all about him. It's him. It's him. It's him. He then carries on in chapter 1, verse 22. He says, And he, Jesus, put all things under his feet, and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. My friends, make no mistake, it doesn't take long as we gather around Paul's masterpiece on the church to realize it is all about him. He is the star player. He is the one that all this is about. Our election, our redemption, our forgiveness, our adoption, our justification. It's all from him, for everything is from him and through him and to him. Everything. You know, one of the things that struck me then this week as I was thinking about this text is not only is the church all about him, but embarrassingly, we don't even come a close second to him, do we? You know? He is the star player, and it's not like we're here like just slightly less than him. No, no. It's all about him, and then we're down here. It is all about him. He alone is the one who gave his life away for the church. He alone. None of us are going to give our lives away for this local church. None of us are going to die on the cross in the place of this church. Only Jesus gave his life away for the church. 
He alone is the one who is ultimately building his church. He alone is the one who single-handedly can say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and then say very clearly to the disciples, listen, I will build my church. I'm going to do it, guys. And not even the gates of Hades will be able to stand against me, for all authority has been now given to me. And he's the one then that gives us gifts and is now equipping and sustaining us. He alone is the one who says to us, listen, apart from me, you can do nothing. But through me, you can do all things because I will strengthen you. He is the star player. It's all from him and through him and to him. We're just helping out here, all right? It's all about Him. And if we're going to be people who are truly passionate about the church, we must settle in our hearts that our whole lives then are to be given to making Jesus famous. And when it comes to the church, it's not me, church. It's Christ, church. It's all about Him. It's not about my wants or my preferences as if all this should just resolve about me. No, all this revolves around Christ. He can do with it as He wants. It's his church. It's from him and through him and to him. And if we're going to be a people who are truly passionate about the church, we have to settle that in our hearts. However good you think you may be, you ain't the star player. And quite frankly, folks, I love you to pieces. Compared to Christ, we are like average at best. It's all about him. Get comfortable with average, but delight in the fact that he is glorious. Give your life away to him. Person passionate about the church lives to see Jesus Christ glorified, his name above all names, but that's not all. A person passionate about the church, number two, rejoices that it is God's plan to redeem a people. See, a person passionate about the church not only understands that all this is about Jesus, they also rejoice in the reality that it isn't just Jesus and me. He's called others into my life. And I get to live the Christian life alongside other people for the glory of God. See, one of the most beautiful things about God's plan is that he not only saves individuals, he brings people together. He not only justifies, he joins. He brings people together for the glory of the Lord in the context of community. So this is what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Paul says, So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Did you see it? You're no longer strangers and aliens. That's who you were once upon a time. Disinterested in the Lord and disinterested in one another. Strangers and aliens to him. Strangers and aliens to one another. But now, fellow citizens, members, part of the household of God, being built together as a temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He's literally taking us one brick at a time and joining us together in the context of the local church into a place where He can dwell in us. That's profound. See, as biblically defined, 
If we really understand that the church is truly majestic and huge, we'll start to see then how narrow and incomplete the all-too-common Lone Ranger approach to Christianity really is. The Bible knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christianity. People not being connected and committed to a local church, just being Christians for Jesus out there. That's a Western concept. It's not in the Bible. See, when we try and do lone range of Christianity, this is what it's like. It's like a brick by itself trying to be the temple of God. And you have a chat with that brick and you meet this brick and, hi, hi what's your name? Oh, I'm a brick. Oh, that's awesome, man. Uh, how, how are you going? Yeah, I'm going pretty well. I'm actually, a, I'm not actually just a brick, actually. I'm, I'm a temple. I'm a temple of God. Well, you're looking like a brick to me, but you know, no, 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 I'm a temple by myself. You know, I'm with everybody, I'm just by myself. I'm a temple. That's how crazy it is. Or it's like a child by themselves, and you introduce yourself to this child, and you say, hey, what's your name? And I'm a child, and oh, that's awesome. Um, are you just by yourself? And yeah, I'm, I am just by myself, but I'm actually by myself, a family of God. <laughs> yeah. So you're a child and a family? Yeah, I'm a family as well. I'm a child and a family. It's kind of both. What? Or it'd be like a kneecap. You introduce yourself to somebody and they're a kneecap for Jesus. Uh, and clearly they're just a kneecap because that's all they've got. And you have a chat with them. You say, what's your name? And oh, I'm a kneecap. And you say, oh, that's awesome. You're, you're just a kneecap? No, no, no. No, I'm the body of Christ. <laughs> and you, well, you're looking like a kneecap to me, you know. It's looking like a kneecap. No, no, no. I'm a body. I'm just by myself. But by myself, I'm a body of Christ. Or you meet a lady in a field and she's all dressed up in white and you're like, oh, listen, nice to meet you. What's your name? And I'm the bride of Christ. What, what, by yourself? Yes, myself. I'm the bride of Christ. It's madness. And yet there are thousands of people in our world that are doing exactly this. Not connected, not committed, not joined by themselves, the temple of God, by themselves, a family of God, by themselves, a body of Christ, by themselves, the bride of Christ. And yet trying to do that, all those images fall so far short of what God's grand design for the church really is, don't you think? Because God's grand design for the church is that together we'll be a temple made up of bricks from every tribe and language and nation being built together by God as a dwelling place for God through the Holy Spirit. That together we'd be a family, brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers carrying out all the one another's of Scripture. Weeping together and rejoicing together and encouraging one another and counseling one another, recognizing that we're family here. That together we would all understand I'm a different part of the body and we'd come together to be the body of Christ, to be his hands and his feet in our world and in the heavenly places, then they may see the manifold wisdom of God worked out. Did you see that? In Ephesians chapter 3, it talks about that it will be through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is seen in the heavenly realms. What's that all about? Well, what he's talking about is that through the church, as you stand together as family, people who are once aliens and strangers and not interested in each other, as you stand together in family and work through your differences and play your parts of the glory of God and see his hands and feet operated in our world, the very angels in the heavenly realms look at you and then look back at God and worship him all the more because of what they see in you. Is that not staggering? You can't see that when you're by yourself. They don't see that when you're by yourself. They see that when they watch you interacting and they go, what is up with that? That is not possible by themselves. This must be you. And so I'm worshipping you more. I see your wisdom more now when I look at them. 
The Bible's clear that we're a temple and we're a family and we're a body and that together as we stand side by side, we are a bride that he's making ready for his return. Festin Kevin, Kevin Gary, an African bishop, says it this way. I always think of coyote when I read this. I don't know why. It says, the cutting of the stone is done and you have been fitted in. That is how he is taking us, stones of all races and backgrounds and fitting us together into a beautiful dwelling place for God. Isn't that wonderful? That's what he's doing. The cutting of the stone is done. You have been cut by the Lord, but not cut to be released, cut to be joined. He's cut you in to be part of a family, part of a body, part of a temple, part of a bride. A person passionate about the church rejoices that it is God's plan to redeem a people. They rejoice in the fact that I'm just a part. But when I stand alongside these other guys, I'm a part of a temple and a family and a body and a bride for the glory of the Lord. When that happens in our lives, that person gets passionate about the church. But what they also do then is they realize, man, I want to serve in this church. I want to play my part. I'm part of this body. I have something to offer. And that's the third point. Number three, a person passionate about the church views their gifts and abilities as resources to serve the church. A person passionate about the church views their gifts and abilities as resources to serve the church. See, when it comes to the importance and priority of serving, I think there's no greater text that I'm aware of than Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, and the words of Jesus himself. See, Mark chapter 10, verse 35 to 45, Jesus is now set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He is heading literally to Calvary. He's going to go and give his life away. He's going to die in the place of the world. And he's told his disciples this three times. Three times he's explained to them, listen, when I get there, I'm going to be taken from you, I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be crucified. And each and every time, the disciples have played the role of knuckleheads and gone, uh huh. Mm-hmm. Well, on this different, on this occasion, this third occasion, Jesus just tells him again exactly what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they come running up to him and say, "Yeah, listen, thanks for that. That's great. Now, when we get to Jerusalem, here's my thinking: Can I sit at your right? Can I sit at your left? It is just one of those cringeworthy moments in Scripture that you're just like, "Oh, oh did they actually say that?" And can we take the mick out of them in heaven for that? Because that's just awkward for eternity. It's just one of those moments. You're like, I cannot believe they said that. But they just didn't understand. They still thought that Jesus, yeah, he's the Messiah. So when he gets into Jerusalem, he's going to take on the Romans. He's going to become the king of all things. So can I sit at your right and can start to see your left? See, to them, true greatness was position. So when we get into it, I want to sit at your right and your left. We want to make sure people know that we're with you. You know, I want to have the place. It says the disciples are really angry about this. Not angry at James and John. They were just angry that James and John had got in first because they were thinking the same thing. When you get there, I was wondering about me. What about me? Jesus then is full of grace once again. I think it is overwhelming. It is a wonderful snapshot of the patience and grace and mercy of Jesus. I would have minimally given him a slap. (laughs) But he doesn't. He gathers them to himself and he talks to them. He wants to teach them something about what true greatness really is and it's different from what they think. 
So he says this in Mark chapter 10, verses 42. It says, So Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them? And their great ones exercise authority over them? But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life away as a ransom for many. It's amazing. Jesus sits his disciples down and sits us down again afresh and says, Listen, Sydney, no, true greatness is not position. It's not being about the rock star leader. It's not being about great wealthy. It's not having a great role in your company. Everybody goes, oh, it's amazing. Well done. That's not true greatness. True greatness isn't about position. True greatness is about serving. It's about giving your life away for people. Considering others more important than yourself and laying down your life for them. And one of the things I love then about Ephesians chapter 4 is Paul continues that very line of thinking and he explains to us, listen, true greatness, it isn't about position, it's about serving. And where is the primary place you get to serve? Well, not only is it in your families, it's in the family of God. It's in the local church. He's carrying on the same vein of thinking, but giving now a context for where am I meant to pursue true greatness? Where am I meant to give of myself so I can be truly great as biblically defined? And the Apostle Paul sits us down and goes, the local church, that's where you do it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. For from him the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Isn't that wonderful? You're going to discover in Exodus chapter 28, God does the same to the Old Testament people then as well. He says, listen, we need to build a tabernacle so I can dwell in it. So tell all the skilled men who I've given skills in this matter to come and do some work for me because we're going to serve now. And Paul does exactly the same here, inspired by God, and says, listen, tell all the skilled men and women in the local church, come and serve Jesus. And come and build something, a temple, a body, a bride, a family for Christ. See, make no mistake, my friends, it's so important then, is it not, that we are connected and committed to a local church. It is vital as biblically defined. See, the Bible's clear, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that for all have been given gifts for the common good. Each and every person has been given gifts for the common good. But what Paul is then making clear in Ephesians chapter 4 is we have to be connected and committed through a local church for that to be a reality. Look at the words. Joined. Held together. Joint. That isn't sporadic, is it not? It's not just free fall. It's not like a group of golfers just going off and doing their thing that are like loosely connected by team but actually have nothing to do with each other. It's talking about a body joined by every joint. Held together. It speaks of connectedness and committed. Chuck Colson, in his book, The Body, says about it this way. He says, every believer is part of the universal church. But for any Christian who has a choice in the matter, failure to cleave to a local church is failure to obey Christ. For it is only through a confessing local body of believers that we carry out the work of the church in the world. It is within the local church that we commit ourselves to intimate relationships with fellow believers 
and submit ourselves to accountability, duties and responsibilities. It is within this community that our Christian character is shaped and our spiritual gifts are developed and exercised. See, the Bible knows nothing of long-ranger Christianity for Jesus all across the world. What it speaks of is connected and committed to this is my church, these are my pastors, these are the men that I'm seeking to follow because one day they will give an account for how they have led me and these are my brothers and sisters where I'm seeking to be joined and connected and committed so that I may play my part for the glory of the Lord so that we can build a body and a temple and a bride. That's what the Bible speaks of. That's why it's so important that we're connected and committed to a local church. And that's why it's so important that we play our parts, isn't it? Because according to Paul, if each part isn't working properly, the body doesn't grow. My friends, the Lord has given you gifts and abilities, primarily not so you can make money. He's given you gifts and abilities primarily so you can serve the local church and build something that will last forever. Build an eternal family. Sovereign Grace, I thank you. I thank God for the way you serve. I do think you excel in this. It is amazing the way you serve as a local church. Um, it's just incredible the way you serve. And each and every week when we gather or at different times when I'm chatting to people, I am genuinely overwhelmed with how much people do. It's incredible. I mean, the chief stewards that you just see going around the place and you only ever really notice when things are going wrong, right? But they're here early. And then often when I left, I left it. I remember a few, a few months ago, in fact, it was actually the last time Dan was on, and, and, I, was, and I was leaving, and Dan was just starting to lock up. And as I was at the car, and this is, this is oh, we are already like 1.30ish, I got to the car, and I saw Dan getting out the door, holding two bags of rubbish, and just putting them in the bin. And I thought, you know what, that, that is true greatness. Because no one sees it, no one knows, but God sees it. You guys are servants. I'm picking on Dan, but I could mention many names. As you think about this local church, we are a body. We are functioning. It is taking place. And so please don't receive any sense of this being a critique to you. I just want to encourage you. I want to commend you to the Lord in this. But I do note when you examine the, the pastoral effect of the Apostle Paul, when he's pastoring his churches, he often commends them and then just says to them, in effect, so do it all the more. So I'm just going to join his ranks, okay? You're doing this, do it all the more. Keep doing it. Keep playing your part. Keep digging in. You know the word that Jesus uses about true greatness uh, to, to serve everybody? It's actually bond servant. It's the lowest of the low. It's the person that would be right down the bottom of the ship with an oar. All right, so I'll be a bond servant for Jesus. It doesn't sound that amazing, does it? But what Jesus is saying is that is true greatness. Sorry, Grace, keep serving in the way you are doing. And as you do, I want you to know you are doing a beautiful thing for the Lord. Don't try and find your commendation from man in this. Do it for the audience of one. He's the one that is noticing it all. Serve him. And as you do, you're doing a beautiful thing for the Lord. And you're primarily doing a beautiful thing for the Lord because you're imitating him. The one who gave his life away for his bride. And you're playing a part then in building something that will last forever. A person passionate about the church, they live to see Jesus Christ glorified. They rejoice in the fact that he redeems a people. And they want to use their gifts to serve the local church in any way they can. 
But that's not all they do. Number four, a person passionate about the church is aware of how much they need the church. See, it's not just about other people that God joins us together. It's actually also about us. Our need. Our need for others. See, in a very real sense, the church is an army. And I love that. I love the way the church is an army. Sometimes I watch you and you just think, that is a force to be reckoned with. And I love it. Because I just see God at work in your lives and the way that works. And when we brandish the gospel and we take it out, you might, that is an army. So the Salvation Army called themselves the Salvation Army because they were emphasizing this reality that this is what we're doing. We're going out and telling people about Jesus. We're going out and making disciples of all nations. In a sense, you are a family. And in another very real sense, the church is a family, right? It's a family. But the truth is, as part of being a family, at times, I think the church also resembles a hospital, doesn't it? It's like a hospital going on. See, take a look around. God has not gathered in this room a group of perfect, independent super-Christians, has he? I ain't seen them. Look around the pastoral team. God has not put a load of Christians together. They've just got it all together. I can be independent. Woo, let's do this. I'm ready to rock. No, no. The, the Lord, by his grace, has gathered together a people with deficiencies and weaknesses and challenges. That's the way he's designed it. And so he puts us together. And what he wants to help us see is, you know what? I'm putting you together because you need them. They need you. But you need them. Reuben Welch says about it this way. He says, of course we believe in the total adequacy of Jesus Christ to meet the total need of the total person. But we must remember this also. He saves in the context of the community of faith. So it isn't Jesus and me. It is Jesus and we. That's so wonderful. The Christian life was never meant to be Jesus and me. It was meant to be Jesus and we. Recognizing my need for other people. You see, when we get sad as Christians, which we sometimes do, right? Let's be honest. You, you can nod. Yeah. Okay, I'm seeing some sad faces. Some are experiencing it right now. When we get sad as Christians, we need Jesus, don't we? But we often need somebody to be Jesus to us in that moment as well. When we're going through issues in our life and we're struggling in our walk with Jesus, my gosh, we need Jesus more than anything. But we actually need somebody to be Jesus with us in that moment and to disciple us, to come alongside us and help us get back on the track with the Lord and understand all that the Lord has caused us to do in this area. When we're going through difficulties and we're overwhelmed with our lives and tired and worn out, we need Jesus, but we also need our brothers and sisters around us to pray for us and encourage us and stand with us, don't we? That's the way God's designed it. He didn't say, I'm choosing you because you will be independent for me. Wonderful. He said, I'm choosing you because, oh my, you are going to need other people in your life. So I'm going to put you together with these guys. And you need to understand they're going to need you. You must play your part with them. But you're going to need them too. You're going to need them. You're going to need those around you in your life. Quite literally, we need each other. You know, one of the stories that I think illustrates this wonderfully, it's actually a reading about um, on my holiday just a few weeks ago. 
In a book about C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis would be one of my literary heroes. I love his imagination. I love his mind. I love the way he thinks. And in this book, it starts talking about C.S. Lewis's relationship with J.R. Tolkien. And I always knew they were very close, but I didn't really understand just how close they were and the important part they played in each other's lives. Well, when C.S. Lewis died on the 22nd of November 1963, this is what his friend J.R. Tolkien wrote about him. He says, The unpayable debt that I owe to C.S. Lewis was not influence, as it is ordinarily understood, but sheer encouragement. He was for a long time my only audience. Only from him did I ever get the idea that my staff could be more than a private hobby. And but for his interest and unceasing eagerness for more of my work, I should never have brought the Lord of the Rings to a conclusion. See, when you read the book, it starts talking about how literally C.S. Lewis was like the midwife to J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And if God in his grace hadn't put C.S. Lewis in J.R. Tolkien's life, we never would have had a story to read. And as the book continues, you realize, guess how the Chronicles of Narnia came about as well? It's because he used to meet with somebody in a pub in Oxford. Who was that somebody? J.R. Tolkien. And J.R. Tolkien would say, Lewis, that's brilliant. That's great. Keep writing about that. Keep going in there. And C.S. Lewis wanted to give up. He's like, I don't think it's even very good. He kept having writer's block. But he encouraged him to keep going. And C.S. Lewis would do exactly the same with J.R. Tolkien. This is brilliant. Keep writing. And, and literally, J.R. Tolkien was just thinking, I don't think it's even very good. And he just couldn't get over. He, he liked the intricacies, so couldn't see the big picture. So C.S. Lewis helped him put it together. Both men would say, if it wasn't for one of those encouragement and help and assistance and feedback, neither set of novels would have been written. What a sad reality that would have been. Well, my friends, I'm not aware that we have any literary geniuses like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien in the room. But when it comes to our needs, I submit to you, we have Lewis's and Tolkien's everywhere. Everywhere. We're designed to need each other. We need each other's encouragement. We need each other's prayers. We need each other's assistance. We need each other's help. We just can't do this life by ourselves. And so God in his grace says, I know. So I'm going to put you together with other brothers and sisters and they'll be cheering you on. Jesus is going to give us himself. And in part, he's going to give us himself through others. The person passionate about the church, I think, is aware of that. And they're aware of how much they need the church, which is why they're so grateful for it. And then number five, finally, a person passionate about the church builds their life around the church. A person passionate about the church builds their life around the church. You see, my friends, if all that we've talked about is really true, then I submit to you, I think then this reality should change everything in our lives. If all that we're reading about here is true, if Jesus really is the king and the one to whom this is all about, for from him and through him and to him is everything you see, and that if the church really is the center of God's plan for redemption, that it is the local church that he will use to win the cities. That it's the local church that he's going to build. That it's the local church that we're called to play our parts in so that we may build a city on a hill for people to watch. If it's true that we've all been given parts to play in the local church, and if it's true that we really need the church in our lives, and I submit to you as Christians, this reality should surely affect everything in our lives, don't you think? John Stott says it this way, I think brilliantly. 
He says, if the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, then it must surely also be central to our lives. For how can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? And how dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? How provoking, how sobering, how biblical. It's true. And yet in all reality, I think one of the things we do in our lives, particularly for us here in Sydney, is we can think of the local church like we think of high school. And we think of high school a bit differently to what we're describing here. See, none of us in the room builds their life around high school, do we? If you do, that's a bit odd. No, no one builds their life around high school. No, for years, we kind of attend high school and then we graduate. And so throughout the entire time that we engage with high school, we spend our entire time kind of doing some stuff but thinking about the next stage, right? We're moving on. We're not really committing to high school. We're dating high school. I'm committing to something beyond. So we kind of hang out with high school. We sort of go steady with high school, but we don't give our lives to high school because I'm moving on. Usually the moving on is going to go to uni. And then we move on to uni. We don't commit to uni. No, we're just there for a season before we do something else. Our lives are constantly moving on. And we can so easily think of a local church like we do high school. But my friends, the local church is so much more than that as biblically defined. The local church is the reality that together we're a temple. A temple being built together by God. That the local church is the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus that we're caused to represent in our communities. Being joined and aided and connected to one another for the glory of the Lord. The local church is a family. Not just any family, but your family. And the local church is a bride. How dare we then Take lightly what he gave his life away for. And how dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center. If this is true, then I submit to you, changes everything. Because it should affect what we do with our life, what we do with our finances, what we do with our energies, what we do with our decision making. One of the things that I found staggering over here, just to be completely frank with you, is sometimes when people move away, and people can move away, but they move away and you say, listen, where are you going to church? And this is my paradigm for church. Where are you going to church? Where is going to be your temple and your body and your family? And the response you get is, I don't know, I'm sure we'll find somewhere. I find that really sad. Because for me, the local church isn't like a soccer club that we're just going to find somewhere else to pick up with. It's the place that God has placed me to play my part. And for me to then leave a local church, I need to be settled that this church doesn't need me anymore. And I don't need them anymore in the same way. And there's somewhere else that God has for me. And when somebody comes with that disposition, I'm going to say as your pastor, well done. How can I help you find that? Good for you. But let us not trifle with church as if it's no big deal when it's biblically defined it's the first thing in the box my relationship with Jesus and what surrounds that is my local church let us not push to the circumference what God places at the center back to the question then you're all looking a little shocked a bit like Chippy the parakeet from a few weeks ago 
If Jesus is so passionate about the church, then does my life reflect a similar passion for the church? My friends, we must not push this to the side as if this is for other people. We need to be a people that say, Lord, Lord, I want to be like you. Well, he's passionate about the church. So passionate that he gave his life up for her. My friends, if as you assess your own heart in this, you realize, you know what, I am passionate about the church. This is my story. I think that would be true for many of us here. I thank God for you. And I'm cheering you on. Thank God for the way you think of this local church. I thank God for the way you give yourself to this local church. We wouldn't be functioning the way we did if you didn't have this type of passion in your life. But if as you assess yourself, you realize, you know what, it, it kind of does, but I probably need to grow a bit. These are some areas that I've got fat in that I haven't really thought about. In fact, actually, I've never even thought about some of these at all. Then I want to encourage you, as you assess then your heart today, would this launch a new season of grace-motivated change in your life? grace-motivated. Because your acceptance before God is not based on your understanding or practice in the local church. Your acceptance before God is through Jesus, through Christ and Him crucified. It always will be. But grace-motivated nonetheless. Because we want to be a people that actually do imitate Christ and become conformed to Jesus Christ, right? That's what we want to do. And so would today start a grace-motivated season of change in your life? Why? Well, because the church is his bride. A bride that he chose from eternity past. A bride that he set his affections upon, brought back from sin and death, and even now gently sanctifies and cleanses her, preparing her for himself. There's no question that Jesus is truly passionate about the church. So by his grace would we be Let's pray. Well, Lord, I do thank you that you are passionate about the church. And your word screams that to us. Lord, I do thank you that you laid your life down for your bride. And that includes us. We're only here experiencing what we have because you've given your life away as a ransom for many. Lord, would you help us then now as you seek to apply this? Would you help us to be ever increasingly conformed into your image? Lord, would you help us to be like you? Lord, I'm aware as we close, we cannot do this by ourselves. This isn't just hard, this is impossible. But that's why you gave us yourself. That's why through the Holy Spirit, you reside in our hearts. So, Lord, would you have your way in our lives? Would you aid us to see what you see? To have vision like you have vision? To have passion like you have passion? Help us to become like you. And would it all be for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.